Welcome to Decoding Hate. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. Today, we're focusing on hate speech, a long-standing dilemma for states and a new challenge for internet intermediaries. I sat down with Professor Dr. Tarla McGonagall, Program Director of the Information Law Masters at the University of Amsterdam Law School and a senior researcher and lecturer at the Institute for Information Law. He holds the chair in Media Law and Information at Leiden University and was recently appointed co-rapporteur of the Council of Europe's Committee of Experts on Combating Hate Speech. Thank you very much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Your background has really focused on freedom of expression, freedom of the media, but also how that intersects with minority rights. And so I think that puts you in a really good position to speak about the topic of today's podcast, which is hate speech. And so one of the things that you have said about hate speech is that it's a term of convenience, really, rather than a a term of art. So can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, well, uh, besides the fact that it's very confronting when you quote uh, someone's work back in in their face. um, Yeah, I think what what, what I meant by that expression was that when you talk about a term of art, it's a term that has a particular meaning. And I don't think that's the case with hate speech. I mean, it's something that speaks to our imaginations. Uh, It conjures up different meanings for different people, but it certainly conjures up meanings. Now, the problem, I think, is that those meanings don't always coincide. We're not always talking the same language. We're not always on the same page. And when I described it as a term of convenience, I think what I was trying to convey was that it's because it's a nice soundbite, it's easy to use in a range of different contexts. If you were to try and use an expression that is legally nuanced and detailed and insightful, your conversation is going to get very cumbersome very quickly because you're quoting chapter and verse. So there's an obvious appeal with the term hate speech because it potentially covers a lot of different types of expression. And as I say, to spell that out, it'd be quite a, quite a mouthful. So it's something that lends itself to debate very easily. And it certainly has lent itself to debate and also to a sort of reticence, I would say, at the international and regional level to actually define it, to give it this meaning. So, you know, for instance, the European Court of Human Rights has, until now, not defined hate speech at all. Why do you think there is this reticence to come out with a meaningful definition? Yeah, well, maybe if I, you, you've correctly pointed out that the European Court of Human Rights has chosen not to try to define the term. But if I can just take one step back from that question and and address the reluctance of the international legal community to reluctance or inability of the international legal community and human rights community to define the term. I think, you know, freedom of expression is a very coveted and precious and closely guarded freedom. And once you start drawing lines around the outer limits of freedom of expression and trying to delineate you know, just how far it reaches or the scope of its protection reaches and what the cutoff point 
would be. You will get very, very differing opinions amongst anybody involved in that debate or relevant drafting exercises. And free expression traditions are very much shaped by the constitutional and cultural and societal contexts in which they operate. And they tend to differ in some in, in some respects uh, among, the, among different countries. So it's notoriously difficult, I think, politically and, and, and legally speaking, to reach a consensual uh, agreement on a definition. And that has been proven time and time again uh, throughout various drafting exercises at the international level. And it's also an exceedingly difficult task. Uh, I mean, the speech is a very nuanced and, and contextualized thing. Now, having said that, there is a very clear and central non-negotiable principle that hatred has no place either, either legally or morally in uh, you know, the whole canon of human rights that have been developed and, and, and are, are, are safeguarded uh, by the international frameworks. Uh, so, I mean, there is a complex relationship uh, there, but we'll, I'm sure we'll get back to that in due course. Now, about the European Court of Human Rights, what's important to remember about the case law of the, of the European Court of Human Rights and the whole approach taken by the European Court of Human Rights is that the term hate speech is an alien term um, when it comes to the European Convention on Human Rights. It is not mentioned anywhere in the text of the convention. And indeed, the first time the court uh, started to use the term, as far as I can tell, was in 1999. So the court just imported this term, if, if you will, into its case law without providing a definition and without providing a detailed explanation as to why it was suddenly uh, starting using this term. Now, granted, in the years and the accumulation of case law since, the court has given us clearer indications of its understanding of the term, but that is uh, something that has taken place gradually and on the basis of growing precedent. And so, so it's it's and it remains a working process. Now, I think there are two approaches to the definitional question, and and one of them is well, if we were to have a detailed, codified, consensual, legally binding definition of the term, that would create a lot of certainty and predictability around the term and make the li any line drawing exercises easier or more straightforward or more predictable. On the other hand, and this is a position including by, by some judges at, uh, at the court, and they've been on, on record, on public record, stating this, that in the absence of a definition, it does give a certain amount of uh, interpretive flexibility. And uh, this is very important if you look at some of the court's interpretive doctrines, like the living instrument doctrine and also the evolutive approach that takes to, to the interpretation of rights enshrined in the convention. So if you don't have a definition, you have got more room to maneuver, as it were, to further elaborate the meets and bounds of the term in future case law. So I'm going to jump right off of your comment about the evolutive approach and this living instrument doctrine, what we in Canada call the living tree approach, and contrast that with our friends to the south in the US, which 
have taken a, a very different view of how the Constitution should be interpreted. And so I want to use that to compare and contrast approaches in, for instance, the United States to hate speech and a country like Germany. Can you explain how these two contradictory approaches work and some of the factors that have gone into those differing approaches taking hold? Yeah, well, I think I think you can clarify and explain the differences that you've pointed to in terms of the legal or more accurately, the constitutional traditions of the two specific countries that you referred to in the US, for example, you've got the First Amendment. And, you know, constitutional scholars will be very quick to tell you that they have the First Amendment because it is a constitutional provision that has uh, stimulated and given rise to a very strong free speech tradition. And that flows from the seemingly seemingly unambiguous uh, formulation that was used, namely the Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press. So you've, you've, you've got a very firm formulation of the, of the First Amendment, and it seems uh, very categorical. And there is a certain interpretive line in US Supreme Court jurisprudence on free speech matters that supports such a no-nonsense or hard line or strict interpretation of the, the text of the, uh, of the First Amendment. And uh, that has given rise to, to a very strong corpus of case law. But we're not talking only about case law. This case law has had a very observable impact in American society. People, you know, will be very often be be familiar with the First Amendment. And, uh, you know, it's something that is alive. If you then look at Germany, just to use your own example, Germany is a European state. So its approach to these issues would be guided to a large extent by the overarching frameworks that govern free speech and the combating of hatred at a European level, and in particular, the European Convention on Human Rights. And the European Convention on Human Rights is the product of its times. The slogan of the drafters of the convention was, never again, the horrors of the second World War and the atrocities of the Second World War and and, and the the lead up to the Second World War, they were uppermost in the drafters' minds, and their ultimate purpose was to ensure that that would, you know, such atrocities and cruelty and, 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 and crimes against humanity would never happen again. And that meant that the right to freedom of expression, just as other rights, would not be seen as absolute. Um, they, a more contextualized approach was taken. And the, the starting premise for all that was that there was no place for racism or hatred in the type of society that they wanted to create in Europe and be guided by this seminal and, 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 and crucial text. So, and of course, Germany was very much at the center of the second World War. And I think in the post-war years, there was a huge endeavor to, uh, again, in some way, make amends for the past and be conscious of what had happened in, in recent history and to ensure that there were constitutional safeguards against those kind of 
crimes against humanity and that such constitutional safeguards would then permeate society more widely. So you, you, you can see that, that history and the living legacy of history, I think, are very, very uh, important in shaping the context in which all, all of these um, constitutional provisions have been developed. Well, and we've talked about this before, but if you look at the way that these instruments were drafted, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the European Convention on Human Rights, there was this sentiment, it seems to me, that was imbued in the text that freedom of expression is so important to safeguard democracy, to ensure progress, but it, it can also be a very dangerous instrument in the wrong hands or if used in the wrong ways. But I want to talk about Article 10, which is the freedom of expression provision in the European Convention on Human Rights, but also Article 17, because as you say, the drafters were very alive to having just come through the Second World War, how rights could be used and how certain groups could be targeted, of course. And so they put in place as well Article 17, which is a sort of abusive rights clause. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about those two provisions and in particular how the court has used them in dealing with hate speech. Because in the same way that we are a little bit fractured in how we think about hate speech, we are fractured in our approaches to hate speech. The European court itself has been quite, I think some might say fractured in its approach to hate speech as well. Yeah, no, they, they are all very perceptive points that you've you've just made. Maybe an important preliminary remark is that Article 17 isn't as unique as we might instinctively think. It, it, it's sometimes called a, a safety valve. It's a prohibition of abuse of rights clause. And actually, similar clauses are pretty much a standard feature of the post-war set or family of international human rights treaties and, and conventions. You've got Article 5 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and it has the same, it has got a similar wording and, and certainly has the similar objective behind it. And what's important to realize is that what these clauses or provisions typically set out to do is to ensure that nobody and no organization will turn the convention against itself. So in, in other words, that they will not engage in any activity or perform any act that aims to destroy any of the rights or freedoms uh, safeguarded in the convention, or, and this is an important feature of Article 17 that's sometimes overlooked, or to limit them to a greater extent than is provided for in, in the convention. And this is perhaps best summed up in the little slogan or paradox, actually, which is sometimes uh, described as pas de liberté pour les ennemis de la liberté. So no freedoms for the enemies of freedom. So this means that if you try to use your right to freedom of expression to go against the values uh, or rights of the convention or everything that the convention stands for, then you're abusing that right. And that puts you beyond the pale of protection when it comes to freedom of expression. The court has developed quite an expansive jurisprudence on this interrelationship between uh, uh, Articles 10 and 17. Now, you've also adverted correctly to observations that have been made and analyses that have been done of the 
court's case law on these issues. And indeed, at times, it's difficult to ascertain consistency in across uh, that body of case law. And perhaps you could explain that by saying that in the purest form of application of Article 17, you will be dealing, or the court rather, will be dealing with types of expression which are prima facie totally against the letter and spirit of the convention. You know, you can see at first sight that they go against the values of the uh, of the convention. When it's as clear cut as that, this is the logic, then Article 17 would be applied in a straightforward way. Former Vice President of the Court, Francoise Tolkens, once described in, an, in a chapter, once described this article as the guillotine provision of the convention. And, you know, the finality of the guillotine falling makes it a very good metaphor. But the court has, for cases which aren't evidently at first glance, uncontroversially against everything that the convention stands for, the court has then felt it necessary not to dismiss or reject an application by declaring it inadmissible, because that is the effect of the uh, clear-cut application of Article 17, that it would be declared inadmissible on its merits and there would be no substantive examination of the facts of the course. But whenever there is a seed of doubt about that, or if there is a complex constellation of contextual factors which may make it a, a more complicated case or a more complicated judgment up front, then the court has on various occasions decided to examine the impugned expression in the perspective uh, from the perspective of Article 10. And in that sense, it is a standard examination of free expression case, which can use Article 17 to reinforce the reasoning. One of the first cases I remember learning about that looked at Article 17 was the Norwood and the United Kingdom case, which concerned an anti-Islam poster that was put up facing the street in the aftermath of 9-11. And the court there used Article 17 as the the guillotine provision, as you mentioned, and just said, this has no place in the convention. This has no place in the member states. But there are other cases, of course, that are perhaps less clear or that the the court is perhaps less willing to say that hits the threshold that we are not comfortable crossing. And so then they go to Article 10, as you've referenced. So when they go to Article 10 and undertake this balancing, what are some of the factors that they look at? That's a very good question. Maybe just just to quote the precise slogan that was used in the Norwood case. So the applicant was a regional organizer for the British National Party, and he put this poster on uh, his office window facing onto the street. So passersby were confronted by the very graphic images and very, well, judge for yourself, the picture showed, the poster showed the Twin Towers in flames, so after the 9-11 attacks, and the words on the poster were, Islam out of Britain, protect the British people. And also depicted in the poster were a symbol of a crescent and a star in a prohibition sign. And the court was having none of this. And I think the way that the court addressed this was very, very firm and very categorical. The court said, such a general 
vehement attack against a religious group linking the group as a whole with a grave act of terrorism is incompatible with the values proclaimed and guaranteed by the convention, notably tolerance, social peace, and non-discrimination. So for the court, there was absolutely no ambiguity at issue in this case at all. And that's why it was so firm in its, in its response. But when the court isn't convinced that it is quite so clear-cut, it will take a more contextualized approach, which entails a substantive examination of the facts of the case. And typically what the court will look at in, in, in such an approach is a range of what one U.S. scholar, Michelle Rosenfeld, has, has, I think, very aptly described as contextual variables. And typically these will involve who is the speaker, what was the intention or the intent of, this, of the speaker insofar as that can be ascertained, what was the context in which he or she made the impugned expression, what was the medium used, was it on a street corner was it via social media? Was it through the audiovisual media? And the medium can be very important in terms of the reach and impact that it will give to the uh, to the expression in question. Uh, another contextual variable will be the impact or effects, or the ex the likely or probable effects, because if you're in a volatile situation, for example, if there is unrest in, the, uh, in, in a particular setting, or if, as the European Court of Human Rights has pointed out, if you are dealing with the volatility of an election period where discussion, public debate is heated, especially when it deals with divisive or emotive issues, then, um, you know, there can be a certain flammability about the, the context, in which case hateful remarks or intolerant remarks could have a greater and more harmful impact than in other situations. So there's a whole range of, 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 of different uh, contextual considerations that could uh, influence uh, or contribute to the court's assessment uh, of whether or not there's been a violation of the right to freedom of expression. And do you think that's one of the reasons why hate speech has been such a difficult issue to reckon with at the national level, but also at the supranational level or and at the regional level, is that it's looking not only at the intention of the speaker, but also at the likely harm that can result? You know, when you think about a lot of rights clauses, it's it's looking at potentially one or the other, and especially, you know, or did it happen or did it not? It's it's much more of a binary. Whereas here, it's it seems the court is concerned with weighing up all of these different factors in a way that is kind of like a secret sauce. We're not quite sure why they're doing it or how they're doing it, but we know that they are looking at all ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Now, I, I think of a, a lot of what I described just a moment ago has to do with the position of the speaker. But as I've mentioned before, the right to freedom of expression isn't just about the speaker. There is what uh, some scholars like Honor O'Neill and, and others refer to as the other regarding nature of freedom of expression. So the impact that a speech will have on addressees or interlocutors, but also a wider 
audience or group or society who aren't necessarily the people or the groups at whom the speech in question is directed. So I think it's important to be aware of all those different dimensions to any use of the right to, to freedom of expression. And crucially, 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 when it comes to hate speech, those targeted by hate speech, and some cases that would be referred to as the victims of hate speech, their perspective should be central to any law or policy or response or investigation into the different dimensions to to hate speech. And that cannot be stressed enough because, you know, if you only frame it in terms of freedom of expression, you, you're not doing justice to the harms that can be caused by it. And very important to have the perspective of, of the targets and victims of hate speech in a very central place. And the court has been very clear and very resolute in saying that there has to be zero tolerance for racism and uh, also similar types of hatred in the uh, hatred on, on other grounds when it comes to the, the rights safeguarded by the, by, by the convention. So I want to ask you about that because the court has recognized and been quite resolute when dealing with hate speech on certain grounds. So quite comfortable finding no violations of freedom of expression when it comes to racist hate speech. And more recently, there have been some judgments about homophobic hate speech as well. And the court seems much more comfortable with accepting limitations on such speech. But there are other protected groups, of course, other protected characteristics. What do you make of the fact that the court has been more reticent to deal with other forms of hate speech against, for instance, women or migrants or persons with disability or indeed on the basis of age and other and other protected characteristics? Well, I think one of the most important and enduring achievements of the post-World War II human rights movement has been to really send out the message and develop legal and other mechanisms to combat racism in in all of its uh, forms and and that was really a i think a real breakthrough now there's absolutely no room for complacency uh, when it comes to combating racism because it's still very much uh, far too prevalent in in contemporary societies but you know this mentality and this strong message that it that it was unacceptable as articulated through general human rights treaties but also specific treaties was a very very important driver of the whole movement and since then the you know the, the the movement the normative standards and the different mechanisms to implement those standards have been evolving at different speeds but i think the key word is evolving or evolution and you see also that different protected groups you you've mentioned a few they have not always been recognized or or protected as quickly or as fully as they should have been. And in some cases, you know, we're still a long way off the level of recognition and protection that they are inherently entitled to. And, you know, societies evolve again at different paces. But if we were to take questions like gender and gender identity, sexual orientation, uh, in some societies, you know, there can be very strong conservatism, which is holding back more progressive approaches 
to these groups who are, you know, share these particular characteristics. And I think for societies, that's a work in progress. And I think that's maybe the explanation as to why not all groups have been recognized as, as quickly or as, as, as fully and as appropriately as, as should have been the case. Now, the court is in a particular situation because it must consider the facts of the cases uh, as they present themselves before the court. It's not the place for the court to develop full-blown policies or to advise on policies for the contracting parties to the convention. So the court is very much dependent on the particular constellations of facts that uh, it has to deal with in specific cases. So in the Vedeland case, Vedeland in Sweden in 2012, the court recognized that hate speech could be uh, on the basis of homophobic speech. And this was, again, another instance of a, uh, a breakthrough by, by the court. I don't think there was any reason of principle to have excluded homophobic hate speech in the past, but there may have not really have been opportunities for the court to take such a pronounced stance on the question as it did in in uh, Vedeland uh, and others against, against Sweden. And uh, again, the hateful impact, I, I don't think there's any case of like a hierarchy of different types of, of hate that would be uh, very strange and inappropriate and against what the convention and the courts stand for. I think it just has to do with the incremental case-by-case case nature of the court's case law. But you do, it's important to emphasize, on the other hand, the potential of the living instrument doctrine and the scope that the court has to evolve. So uh, it's only a matter of time and hopefully a, sh a short period of time before the court will also recognize the uh, harmful nature of, of sexist hate speech and hate speech targeting persons on the grounds of uh, maybe having a disability or the other examples which are, are equally egregious. I'm glad you brought up the Vetteland case. I think it's a fascinating case for all kinds of reasons that we could spend hours talking about. But just you know, in brief for listeners who haven't read it, it concerned homophobic leaflets in students' lockers that were distributed in a school. And, and I think one of the facts that the court was particularly troubled by was this notion that the students were this captive audience. They didn't, they couldn't control whether or not they read this leaflet, whether it was in their locker or not. And we have one of our first hate speech cases in Canada was a very similar case of a teacher who was spouting anti-Semitic remarks to his students. And the students were expected to replicate them on exams or tests. And, and you see a lot of parallels there, which I find fascinating because, of course, then you also add in the fact that they're students and they're young people. And Yeah, well, if, if I may interrupt you, I, th I think you've brilliantly brought together uh, some of the contextual elements that we discussed earlier, because here you see how important it is to consider uh, who the speaker is. What is the nature of his or her role? Is he or she in a position of authority, which would give additional weight or significance, either political or legal, to the speech or to the hate speech in question. If it's somebody acting in an, from a position of leadership or in an official capacity, to what extent does that mean that the authority of the institution or the position is compounding 
the hateful remarks and therefore aggravating the impact that it will have on the victims. And then you also consider the recipients or targets of the speech or hate speech. And, you know, they would be teenagers, as in the case of Fadelund, or minors or members of minorities you know that that can that can exacerbate the impact that it has on them and so there are all kinds of hierarchies and power dynamics that could be at play a former colleague of mine said bad cases make bad law but i think that the converse is also true that when you have these very strong cases and facts as you do in vetland as we had in keegstra in the canadian case on hate speech the court is much quicker in going there. And so when when you were speaking about the development and, and hopefully the quick development of cases looking at gender identity, looking at sexual orientation, looking at age discrimination, disability discrimination, or hate speech rather, perhaps it is just a need for a very strong case to come forward that will make the difference. I want to turn now to more modern times, I suppose, and the advent of the internet, which has, of course, changed the game in all kinds of ways, particularly when it comes to hate speech and dealing with the proliferation of of hateful speech in any case. What are the challenges of having, first of all, these new actors on the scene? So very powerful internet intermediaries like Facebook and Twitter. How has that changed things in your view? Hugely, profoundly, beyond recognition in some respects, because the advent of, of, of the internet and all the you know the services based on the internet and the powerful online actors that have emerged in this still relatively new uh, communicative environment have, have just um, created so many opportunities for generating speech for uh, spreading speech, for amplifying speech, giving it more prominence. And when used for good purpose, good purposes, this is a great enrichment of democratic societies. And these are mechanisms for empowering masses of people who have traditionally been disenfranchised and whose voices had no chance of being heard. So, um, you know, fantastic potential, and, and, and it should have led to a great leveling uh, in terms of, of, of communicative power and opportunities. But there is a dark side to all of this, and when speech is used for purposes such as the propagation of hate, all these positive elements and features of a more interactive, dynamic, but also permanent environment because you know the old adage goes you know what's 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 on the internet stays on the internet uh, very difficult to to remove all traces of it this is the flip side the dark side and the very often dangerous side of the same uh, communicative potential and opportunities that are there and i think the point is well taken by various critical race theorists who point out to the fact that online hate speech can have a much more aggravated impact 
on its targets and victims for a number of reasons. In the first place, very often uh, hate mongers online will hide behind the shield of anonymity or pseudonymity. Uh, the inability to easily identify who is behind hateful comments can really exacerbate the fear and anxiety that is caused by the expression in the first place. Who's behind all this? Is it the next door neighbor? Is it someone down the street? Is it someone powerful? Is it an organized group? You know, these are all things that will prey on the minds of targets and victims and are very, very troubling, troubling concerns. Also, the point is often made that once comments are posted online, they are so easily, so easy to spread them uh, through all the you know, the conventional techniques nowadays, like uh, retweet, you know, recommend, and, and, you know, virality of hate is, is unfortunately a given in the online environment. It's very, very prevalent. And these comments and, and posts and, and expressions and content, because we're not just talking about text here, we're talking about images, we're talking about GIFs, we're talking about memes. I've even heard of cases where sign language is being used to convey hateful messages, partly as a way to circumvent conventional techniques techniques that would pick up on such hateful, hateful content. Deep fakes, when they've got a hateful component, uh, you know, it's, there is a plethora of different types of content online and photos as well, which can be manipulated very easily. Uh, you know, the adage that the camera never tells a lie is it belongs to a, a more innocent age, I think, quite drastically. But the, the point that I'm working towards here is, in addition to the sheer diversity of different forms of uh, hateful content that can be generated, you've also got volume and the uh, how easily they can be spread all around the world and also the permanency of this content online. It's so difficult to fully and effectively remove such content because it's circulated elsewhere. Um, and that has a compounding effect because each time you're confronted by the hateful comment, it hits you again and again and again. And this is, uh, this is hugely, hugely pro problematic. I think you very nicely explained the huge challenges that the internet pose. And I appreciate the reference to the critical race theory. It gives you a real picture of, of what it would be like to think that your neighbor or a person in a position of power might be saying these things and, and not knowing. Well, and I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you again, but I think what, what what that illustrates in a very important way is is why you need to take the perspectives of, uh, and this is this is a central feature of critical race theory. You need to take the perspectives and the experiences of those targeted by hate speech and the victims of hate speech, and use that to inform legislative policy and a whole range of other responses that need to be calibrated to effectively counter the harmful effects of uh, hate speech. I think that's exactly right. And obviously having a diversity of opinion, I think, and an end of experience can only inform how we try to address this problem that is anything but easy to do, right? I think having a, a range of experiences can only help that. But I mean, I think, you know, the whole, you know, there have been many paradoxes and seeming contradictions or in, in what we've been discussing. But again, another important point to make is that freedom of expression for 
minorities and 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 those targeted by hate speech and the victims of, of hate speech that's very important too because free speech sometimes referred to as counter speech you know it, it gives different groups in society the wherewithal to set out their own narrative. Free speech advocates will often argue that the best response to hate speech is more speech. And that's that's a, that's an argument that I have some sympathy with, but I, I think it's I think it's inadequate. Yes, I think more speech or expressive opportunities are very important for groups, particularly minority groups, because it allows them to articulate their identity and express it in different ways, and also to offer pushback against any hateful narrative targeting them. However, I think the, the strength of this argument rests on the premise that the counter speech will actually connect with the, the the perpetrators of hate speech and not just connect but also connect in a communicative way and the essence of communication of course is that there is a willingness on both sides to actually meet each other in their messages and uh, nothing could be farther from the uh, minds and, and intentions of many many hate mongers so you know the the rational basis for the argument, which works very well, maybe in an intellectual or theoretical way, doesn't pass muster on the ground. And this problem uh, of, you know, communicative connection is all the more challenging in an online environment, which is very fragmented in the first place. It's important to recognize the power of freedom of expression, to bring different groups and communities in society together. But then there has to be a shared space in which they can exchange information, ideas, perspectives, and maybe try and understand each other. So this argument, I think, is very challenging in an online environment. But I think it's also important to look at counter speech and, and, and scholars like Catherine Gelber in Australia have done some really excellent work on this. And counter speech doesn't only have to be reactionary. And I was maybe hinting at that in the in the last few remarks that it can also be empowering, it can be preemptive. And if you've got robust public debate, which is pluralistic and inclusive, I think there there is scope to nip a lot of hate speech in the bud by having a, a greater equality within within public debate. But if hate speech dominant or predominant in public debate, it will have a potentially and very often in practice as well, have a chilling effect on those who might otherwise like to participate in, in public debate and may engender fear in them and therefore make it more difficult for them, if not impossible uh, in some case, to, to participate uh, effectively in public debate. The point is a very good one that while it can, of course, be also an instrument for vulnerable groups to express themselves and to express counter views, if the effect of this hate speech against them is to push them out of these spaces, then society is, is really going to suffer for it. With the rise of these internet intermediaries, we now have quite powerful actors alongside states um, who had traditionally policed, for lack of a better word, hate speech. And so whose job is it now to do this? Everyone's. The contemporary 
information and communications environment, which is increasingly online, but not exclusively, and it's important not, not to forget that, but increasingly online, it, it, is, it has become very multidimensional and multi-level, and it calls for engagement and effective engagement by a multitude of, of, of stakeholders. Hate speech is complex. If you look at the whole ecosystem of free expression and of, on, and, and of hate speech, there needs to be strong, constructive cooperation between all the different actors and each angle of approach needs to be effective. The unprecedented power exercised by, in particular, the big tech or the more dominant platforms in the online world, that is truly unprecedented. And, you know, you cannot turn a blind eye to that. But the question is, how do you uh, shoehorn international law to try and make it applicable and effectively applicable to these uh, new power brokers in the in the online environment. The complexities of regulating hate speech were hard enough for states to grapple with, but now internet platforms have entered the fray and they're policing speech beyond national borders and on an unimaginable scale. In the next episode, we do a deep dive into content moderation, including how platforms are doing it, the challenges it poses, and whether better approaches are available. My thanks to Tarla McGonigal for his insights and to the OSCE representative on freedom of the media for the funding which made this podcast possible. Dan Rutka wrote and performed the music for this series. For more on today's topics, or to share your comments and reactions, visit our website, decodinghatepod.com. I'm your host, Katie Pentney. Thanks for listening.